Bibles, turn with me to John 14. We're in our journey of the Gospel of John. In the chapter 14, it's Passion Week. Jesus is with his disciples. And he's getting ready to suffer and to die. He knows also how troubled his disciples are at what he's been telling them. And Jesus' desire for them is to settle their troubled hearts by encouraging them to trust him. When you and I, our hearts are overwhelmed, Jesus tells us the same thing that he told his disciples 2,000 years ago. Trust me. Now that might sound simplistic, and in theory it is simplistic. However, aren't we continuously learning to trust God? Isn't that part of the Christian walk, is learning to trust God? Hopefully you're trusting God more than you did whenever you got saved. For me it's almost 40 years. Hopefully I'm trusting God more now than I did in 1978. Turn with me to John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again... And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on... You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you. Whoever believes in me also will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the truth in this section of your word this afternoon. Help us to grab hold of it and own it. But we need your spirit to open our minds and hearts to understand it. And empower us to obey it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Philip Brooks, an American... Episcopal clergyman and author, he writes this, What a vast portion of our lives is spent in anxious and useless forebodings concerning the future, 
either our own or of that of our dear ones. Present joys, present blessings slip by, and we miss half their sweet flavor. And all for want of faith in him who provides for the tiniest insect in the sunbeam. Oh, when shall we learn the sweet trust in God our little children teach us every day by their confiding faith in us? We, who are so mutable, so faulty, so irritable, so unjust, and he who is so watchful, so pitiful, so loving, so, merc- so, so merciful, so forgiving, why cannot we, slipping our hand into his each day, walk trustingly over that day's appointed path, knowing that evening will bring us sleep, peace, and home? In essence, Philip Brooks is saying what our text is saying. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now proposition tonight for this particular text is only trusting Christ brings comfort to our troubled hearts. This is wonderful news for you and me today. Because we too live in an age of anxiety, stress, panic, fear, and so on. Probably more than ever before. And without getting into the statistics, which I'm not prepared to do, the few things I have been reading clearly shows that America is at an all-time high of mental disorders, especially in children. Some, of course, may be chemical or hormonal imbalances, but many seem to be stress, anxiety, fear, and panic-related. There is more medication for these disorders than we can imagine. But Jesus gives us one antidote for troubled hearts. Trust me. It's a few hours before Jesus' crucifixion. The disciples are troubled. They're very troubled. After Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they had to be on this euphoric high. He's the one, the Messiah, the conquering king, the one who will deliver us from Roman oppression. And he will take care of us the rest of our lives. We're free. Our troubles are over. This is Palm Sunday. They were flying high. Only to be brought down to the deepest despair. Jesus had to bring them into reality. Because the thought of a suffering Messiah had no place in their theology. If they understood what he has been telling them all along, maybe they wouldn't have been so troubled. They heard him say many times, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he would be raised back to life. And now it's hours before his death. And not only was he going to suffer and die, but he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. He tells them that Peter is going to deny him. He tells them that he's going away and where where he's going, they cannot come now. They went from this highest high to the lowest low. This was more than they could bear. But Jesus knew their pain. And instead of his disciples comforting Jesus, after all, I mean, it was Jesus who was the one who was going to a brutal crucifixion, wasn't he? He was the one who was going to be betrayed. He was the one who was going to be abandoned by all. No. Once again, he was selflessly comforting them. There's three points I want to bring in this message. 
But we're only going to look at one point tonight because it's just too much content. We're going to look at the first point, but I'm going to give you the three points. First point is believing in Christ's return brings us comfort. Number two, believing Christ and knowing the Father brings us comfort. And three, believing Christ's promises brings us comfort. Point one, believing in Christ's return brings us comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. Let's read verses 1 through 6 again. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, will I come again? I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Once again, the disciples are perplexed. Overwhelmed. They're dismayed. They're scared. They're anxious. And Jesus wants to settle their hearts as he settled the sea when he spoke to it and said, peace be still. He tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. And I guess in essence, he told them, guys, stop worrying. They were troubled about all that was going to take place. And the Greek word for trouble comes from a form of a verb, tarasso, and translate disturbed or terrified. It's figurative of severe mental or spiritual agitation. They were spiritually and mentally agitated. The expositor's Greek testament translates it like this. Let not your heart be tossed and agitated like water driven by winds. The disciples, to say the least, were troubled. And Jesus, the compassionate Savior, tells them, stop. By the way, that was a command that he gave them not to worry. He wasn't suggested to them not to worry. He was commanding them not to worry. Then he gives another command that if they obeyed, would result in a peaceful heart. Stop worrying. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Stop worrying, guys, and believe. Yes, it's as simple as that. That They already had a belief in the God of Israel. But they were also called to trust in Jesus. He said, believe in God, believe also in me. After all, as Dr. D.A. Carson says, if Jesus invariably speaks the words of God and performs the acts of God, should he not be trusted like God? This was not a call for them to believe in salvation because they did that already. The form of the Greek word for believe is pisteo. It's in the present tense, which means an ongoing personal relational trust. Yes, the disciples genuinely believed in him, but their faith was at best weak. And with Jesus departing them, he was telling them to put the full weight of their trust in him. Continue to believe and trust in him. Keep on believing in God and me, what he was telling them. Throughout the Old Testament, God constantly told the Israelites to trust him and don't be afraid. One of the many scriptures, Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And throughout the New Testament, the people of God were always encouraged to trust and not to be afraid. But how were they going to be comforted when he was leaving them? I mean, their dreams were shattered. And I think we can answer 
that better than they could at that time. Because, just because we don't have Christ's physical presence, they did, yes. But we do have the ministry today of the Holy Spirit. And in just a short period of time, the day of Pentecost would arrive and they too would experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now we all experience Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But at that time, they did not understand that. As John Owen, the Puritan said, a sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears. And not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. You see, when a troubled heart is present in our lives and frequently raises its ugly head, I think we could all agree to that. Trust God. He'll never leave us. He will never forsake us. There's a ministry for women called Proverbs 31 Ministries. And one of the speakers, Renee Swope, tells a story of when her husband was out of town. She would have fear. She would be afraid to go to sleep. She said fear had become a constant companion during his nights away. I knew I needed to trust God, but I didn't. She would crawl into bed and slip under a blanket of fear. And even though she read the scriptures and had sticky notes on her lamp, she still did things like put a phone under her pillow and a neighborhood directory besides her bed. She took, a step, she took it a step further by putting toys on the stairs to trip possible burglars. She brought her children in her room to sleep there as well and moved the dresser in front of the bedroom door. And although, although she thought she was controlling her circumstances, fear had taken control of her. Frustrated that she still couldn't sleep, she opened the Bible and read a familiar passage in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The fires or the flames will not set you ablaze. Let me read verbatim the conclusion of her story. As I read each word slowly, God showed me something I had never seen. My fears were like flames and my efforts to protect myself were like gasoline. Every attempt to ease my fears was like dousing fuel on the fire and now it was consuming me. Gently the Holy Spirit reminded me that God had not given me a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Suddenly I knew the only way to overcome my fear and and walk in faith was to walk through what I feared the most. I had to put away the props in which I placed my faith and go to bed trusting God, realizing that even if my fears came true, He would be with me. I crawled out of bed and put everything away. The dresser went back in place, my kids went back to their rooms, and I went to sleep without my phone under my pillow. And that night, I slept better than I had in weeks. And she goes on to say, Fear loses its power when we actively trust God more than what we fear. And she goes on to say again, let's ask God to show us what we are afraid of. What is paralyzing our faith and keeping us from living confidently in his peace and freedom? And then let's give God a chance to come through for us as we courageously walk through our fears, holding God's hand and trusting his heart to lead, protect, preserve each to preserve us each step of the way. Now this story uh, was for a woman's ministry. But men as well need to heed this encouragement. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
is no respecter of gender. So Jesus encourages his own to stop worrying and to trust God. Verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. One of the ways Christ comforts them is telling them he's not abandoning them, but he's going to prepare a place for them and then come back for them. Did you know Jesus is preparing a place for you if you're a Christian? Did you know he's making ready a place for his own? Did you know that he obtained a right for you to be there through his death and through his resurrection? Why should his disciples and us believe that he's going to prepare a place for us? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the one who told us, period, end of story. In my father's house are many rooms, he goes on to say. If it were not so, I would have told you that I could go to prepare a place for you. Now I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, especially the old timers. Okay, let me take a sip of water because I'm in trouble after this one. Okay, the King James Version says, and Aunt Diana, don't get mad at me. Are many mansions. Okay, unfortunately that's not a good translation. Of what Jesus is talking about. Dwellings is a better translation. Now many Christians think that. When we get to heaven. We will get these big mansions to live in. And depending on how obedient we lived. Our lives here on earth. In service to God. Will determine how big our mansions are. And how close we are to the throne of God. In other words. If you were more obedient. In your service to God. You're going to have a big mansion with 39 rooms. And it's going to be very close to the throne room of God. And if you were a disobedient Christian, well, you're going to be all the way in the back living in a shack. And believe we laugh, but that's what... And, and songs are written like that. Some old hymns. But that is not accurate. This is not about huge buildings in heaven, but about space. This is the picture. Israel, in Israel, a father would build additional homes on his house for his sons and their families. When Kim and I bought our home, we made sure the house had four bedrooms. One for me and Kim, and one room for each of the three children. One house with many rooms. That's the picture. It was intimate. There was closeness because we were together. It was big enough for all of us. The many dwellings in the father's house also relates to intimacy. Revelation 21.3 John says And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying Behold the dwelling place of God is with man He will dwell with them And they will be his people And God himself will be with them As their God There's going to be more than enough space in heaven Number one For every saint And it will be intimate Jesus is preparing Permanent dwelling places for us. For every saint. Sort of a royal suite in our father's house. 
which is heaven. When he says my father's house, he's talking about paradise. He's talking about heaven. And if it were the mistaken notion of mansions, separate mansions, there would be no intimacy because we would be living separate from God. And every now and then we would come out to meet with him. No, that's not what it is. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We will live with the, we will live with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. So Jesus was going away in part to prepare a place for them and us, but would also come again to take us to himself so we could be where he is. Did you know Jesus is coming back for us? There's some debate on what he meant about that. Is he talking about his appearance after the resurrection to his disciples or the gift of the Holy Spirit outpoured at Pentecost or his second coming? I think, and on most of the scholars I believe agree with this, he's talking about his second coming, his return. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger says, similar te- terminology is found in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 2, where the bride says that she will bring her lover to her mother's house. Here Jesus, the messianic bridegroom, is said first to go to prepare a place for his own in his father's house, and then come back to take them home to be with them. And I think that beautifully portrays Christ the groom preparing a place for his bride, the church, us, and then coming back to receive her at his second coming. Let not our hearts be troubled. He's coming back for us. There's a poem I'd like to read to you from an unknown author about a child waiting expectantly for her daddy to come home. And which I think illustrates the point of not letting our hearts be troubled about anything because he's coming back for us. This is a child's poem, so excuse the, um, you know, the kind of childlike language here. He says, she says, my daddy loves me. I already know. He hugs me and kisses me. Please, daddy, don't go. And he leaves our home on this cold wintry morn. I know that I'll miss him. My heart will be torn. See, my daddy's a sailor. I'm so glad to say he sails on a ship sometimes so far away. He travels the ocean and goes to many places. He visits foreign countries and sees the different faces. My daddy, he misses me. He always writes me a letter to say he'll be home soon and that all will be better. I'm counting the days until my daddy comes back. When he, walk, when he walks in the door, I will help him unpack. Oh, daddy, please hurry. I'm waiting for you. I know you're still out there on the ocean so blue. Just sailing and sailing and sailing the seas. I hope you are coming. Hurry up, daddy, please. It's been a long time, but the day's finally here when my daddy comes home. I know that he's near. I watch as his ship returns from sea. We're proud of my daddy, my mommy, and me. He walks off the ship as proud as can be. He did his part so we can be free. I run to my daddy for a hug and a kiss. He squeezes me so tightly, a squeeze that I miss. I'm happy my daddy's home, happy as can be. I know he did his job for mommy and me. Now, the way this child waited expectantly for her daddy to come home as he served his country, believers, you and I, should be waiting with assurance for Jesus' return from preparing a place for us, not to stay here anymore, but to take us to heaven. And this is a cure for a troubled, anxious, fearful heart. In life, 
There are so many things that can trouble us. But Jesus wants to settle our hearts. Matthew Henry. How many, how many of you have heard of Matthew Henry? The great Puritan writer. He said, The belief of Christ's second coming, of which he has given us the assurance, is an excellent... i got to forget. <laughs> Preservative. <laughs> Against a troubled heart. I'm sorry, I had trouble seeing that. An excellent preservative against a troubled heart, the belief of Christ's second coming. James 5.8 tells us, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why should we not let our hearts be troubled? Number one, he's preparing a place for us. Number two, he's coming back for us. And number three, there's a third element, and that is, we know the way to God. You and I know the way to God. Verses 4 to 6. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And at this point in Christ's ministry, they should have known the way. At this point. He told them the way to heaven via the cross and resurrection. He told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But they were so rattled by the things Christ told them. You know, Peter's going to deny you. Judas is going to betray. I'm leaving. I'm going to a place where you, can, you cannot come right now. They were so confused at that point that the truth just passed them by. But Thomas was honest. Doubting Thomas was honest. He was a skeptic, yes. But we've got to give him a little credit. He presses Jesus for more clarification. He claims that they neither know the destination of Jesus or the way to get there. And I believe they all wanted to believe and trust in Jesus. But they were confused about what he was telling them. They still didn't get it at that point. But let's not be hard on them because you and I don't get it at times. And we have more revelation than they did. We have the complete canon. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. At that point, they did not have the infilling of the Holy Spirit. At that point, the canon was not completed. So let's not be too hard on them. Because we cannot get it at times. If we were there, we would have had the same question. Lord, we do not know you where you were going. How do we know the way? But the compassionate Savior... Doesn't criticize Thomas, but simply and profoundly tells him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Did you know that Jesus is the only way to God? Did you know that? That he just told them an exclusive gospel? He just told them, in essence, that all other religions are false? He just told them a narrow-minded way of thinking? He just told them there is no other way to heaven. And he also just gave them the sixth of the seven I am statements in John's gospel, which affirms his divinity. Jesus said, I am the exodus. When he says I am, he is saying I am the exodus. I am of the exodus of the Old Testament. The others in John's gospel, I am the bread of I am the bread from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. And in, verse, and in chapter 15, when we get to it, he'll say, I am the vine. 
Listen carefully. We live in a postmodern age that believes there are many, many ways to God. There are many paths to religious truth. This is nothing short of a satanic lie. In our pluralistic society, which we dwell in, we are demanded, not asked, we are demanded to believe in different ways to get to heaven. And to deny that, and genuine Christians do deny there are other ways, we are labeled intolerant, we are labeled narrow-minded, we are labeled hateful and bigoted. Some would even go as far as saying, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is the only way. Also, there are many who say the Bible teaches that God will save everyone. However, there is no way anyone can honestly read the scriptures and say with a clear conscience, there are other ways to God beside Jesus and that everyone will be saved. There is no way. Dr. Kenneth Gangel says... The New Testament knows nothing of universalism. The idea that God will find some way to save everybody. What could be clearer than Jesus' words in verse 6? No one comes to the Father except through me. God will not save everyone. And God gave only one way to reconcile sinful man to himself. Jesus, his only begotten son. Jesus alone is the way. Listen carefully. This is an exclusive gospel. This is a narrow-minded way of thinking. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in what? In who? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is what? One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. And then John 10.9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by Buddha, if anyone enters by their good works, if anyone enters by Muhammad, no, he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is an exclusive gospel. And yes, Christians who are narrow-minded people understand this. This is... Actually a compliment if somebody calls you narrow-minded. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it or buy it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? You. John Calvin said, If any man not satisfied with him alone wishes to go further, he will find death instead of life. Can't Christians believe that there is one way, yet at times implicitly speak to others as if there are other ways? I think so. We must be careful. When we see a person living a life of good works, to automatically say they must be a Christian. After all, they say they believe in Jesus and they do good works. Well, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one to 23, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. 
He said, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done all these mighty works in your name? And what is he going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So, they are trusting more in what they do than what the Savior did. And we must be careful not to affirm that. If we do, and they haven't been born from above, then we just affirmed another way of salvation. Jesus plus good works. And I will press a person. If they think, they, if I think, they might be trusting in, their, in what they do and their own righteousness rather than Christ and Him alone. Just, I just, just Friday I was talking to a co-worker and um, we were talking to him about the gospel and, and he said to me, um, you know, yeah, I believe everything you're saying. He, I, I believe in that. I believe that. I believe that. I was talking about Christ and His death and His resurrection. And, but I knew he didn't. So I said to him, well, let me ask you something. I said... Why should you go to heaven? And he said to me, well, I'm a good person. So he said, wrong answer. I told him, it's the wrong answer. And I told him again, I said, it's not because of what you do or what you did or how good you are. He said, it's because of Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. Not him plus something else. It's what the reformers say in one of the five solas Latin phrases. Solus Christus, meaning through Christ alone. Jesus alone is the way to God, to eternal life, to heaven, because He is the truth. Did you know that Jesus is the truth? He is not a truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. Truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way because He is the truth. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, called the Prologue, John tells us in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Truth is the opposite of falsehood. But John talks about truth in a deeper way. Truth is the self-declosure that comes from God. It's a self-revelation from God. He creates the standard for truth. Truth is not just what is right, but as Dr. Gary Berg says, truth is divine, and this is right. Truth doesn't lie. Numbers 23, 19. It says that God is not man, that he should lie. God himself sets the standard for truth. Everything that contradicts God's truth is a lie from Satan. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. God is truth. Satan is falsehood. Paul told the Roman church in chapter 3 verse 4. He said, let God be true, though every man were a liar. People are saved because they come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 On the other hand, anyone who is perishing is because they refuse to love the truth. And so be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Did you know that Jesus is the life? Jesus alone possesses the life of God. Back in John chapter 11, when Jesus was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus' sister Martha was telling Jesus that, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus told him, your brother's going to rise again, Martha. And then Jesus said, uh, Mary said, yes, I know, but in, in the resurrection. 
He's going he's gonna to live again. And Jesus said to him, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. I give life to who I want, when I want. And I'll give life to your physical brother right now. Death has no power over Christ. He took the sting out of death. There are no barriers for Jesus because he is the resurrection and the life. He can give physical and spiritual life to whomever and whenever he wants. Jesus possesses life. So Jesus is not a way. He's not a truth. He's not a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no relationship with God except through the Son of God. Islam's Allah is not the way. Buddha is not the way. Hare Krishna is not the way. Confucianism is not the way. Agnosticism is not the way. Atheism is not the way. Judaism is not the way, even though Christianity has many roots in Judaism. Judaism is not the way. Jehovah Witnesses is not the way. Mormonism is not the way. Good works, self-righteousness is not the way. And there are many more religions of the world that are not the way, nor do they point to the way. By the way, sonship ministries and all true churches are not the way. However, we point to the way. Jesus Christ. And that's the difference between all religions of the world and true Christianity. False religions point to themselves and how you can merit God's favor. Christianity points to Jesus and his work on the cross. That's the difference. And that's what makes an exclusive gospel. So when you preach a gospel to anyone, you are preaching an exclusive gospel. A story... I read, I think will drive home this point that Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God. It's from a pastor. He said, one of the essential responsibilities of the pastor is to visit the sick. This past week I set out for the ICU to visit a man who was recovering from a complication brought about by a recent heart attack. I arrived at the front desk of the ward only to be told by the nurse that he was upstairs for test and wouldn't be down for a while but that his daughter was in the room waiting for him to return. So I went in and introduced myself to her as the pastor of a church where his mother and father occasionally visit, visit with friends. She was thrilled to meet me and so appreciative that I would come to visit her, her dad. We hugged and I assured her that there, was a lot of people, there were a lot of people praying for her father. As we waited together, we began to talk about the weather, grandchildren, how Miami, the Miami Heat were playing, we were having a great time getting to know each other. Finally, I asked her about this special therapy I knew they had planned for her father. My father isn't receiving that treatment, she said, tilting her head slightly and staring curiously at me. Oh, um, I stumbled. I was pretty sure that that's what I was told. Then she asked, what was the last name of the man you came to visit today? Yikes. The receptionist had given me the room number of another man with the same first name as the man I, I was actually there to visit. Can you say awkward as I slink out the door, profusely apologize for the misunderstanding? What is so interesting to me about this little mishap is how it points out the significance of a shared relationship. We had connected over what we thought was a common relationship. 
Once that relationship was removed, the connection went with it. Isn't that exactly what Jesus was warning us Jesus was warning us of when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Remove a relationship with Jesus and you lose any connection with the Father. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And no one can approach God through, but through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. When you and I understand this and go to the Father through the Son, we have the blessed hope that He's coming back for us to be with Him forever. Did you know that? And that should bring us peace to our troubled hearts. When life doesn't go as thought we should, it it should go. Or Job-like trials take control of our lives. Remember, Christ is coming back. And our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me conclude with a song that my wife's going to sing with uh, Lewis. It is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford, who should have had a troubled heart because of the tragedy upon tragedy on his life. Instead, he trusted Christ. And I think this song, as they're singing it, and you read the words that sing along with it, you'll understand that Christ comforts a troubled heart.